Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, Centered From Reality Podcast. First off, apologies for kind of the sporadic schedule the last week. Um, I'm wrapping up classes and a lot's going on, a lot of life stuff, so I'm trying my best, I guess we will say, but um, hopefully by next week, things should be kind of back to normal. Finishing up my thesis and a couple other papers this week, and yeah, it's kind of crazy that things are slowly winding down. Um, this accelerated dual masters thing <laughs> went a lot quicker than expected. So anyways, today I want to focus on the Ukraine updates, I guess we could say, and the assassination of Russian oligarchs' daughter inside of Russia. And I will get into why I don't think even Russian oligarch, it's more like ultra-nationalist, like fascist, uh, Rasputin type of figure. Anyways, so some are blaming Ukrainians, others foreign actors, some are mentioning maybe it's someone inside of Estonia, some think it's eternal forces trying to justify an escalation. Either way, the assassination is going to just justify, I think, Russian aggression anyways, so we'll get into that. But first, I want to start with a really heartwarming article from CNN, and by heartwarming I mean troubling. And it's called Overlapping Emergencies Strain the Nation's Healthcare Workforce and Threaten Critical Vaccination Campaigns. And I'm not going to stay on this for very long, but there's some important things here. So first, I have discussed in detail already, you know, the U.S.'s early failures with monkeypox and why you, it's, it's, it's kind of surprising after what's happened with COVID that we didn't really learn too much and we were still unprepared even when there was writing on the wall. But anyways, moving on from that, I have seen there's some positives with the, with the monkeypox vaccine now. It looks like they're finally getting their shit together. I, bet, I guess better late than never. But anyways, and so... We have COVID, we have a rush to get better equipped vaccines for that, we have a rush to get treatment for monkeypox, and now apparently there's a third concern, which might be overblown, but it's worth talking about, is that there is a detection of polio in sewage water in New York City, and there is a young man who did contract the virus and has been paralyzed, and now that story sounds worrying off the bat, I'll get into why it's not likely this is like a serious issue for most people, but it's still, you know, definitely not the best news that we've ever heard, but anyways, so... Health experts are basically just worried that the system may not be ready for all these overlapping issues and that with the growth in anti-vaccine skepticism, disinformation, and just people quitting, like a lot of healthcare officials, nurses, doctors quitting, it could be just kind of a perfect storm going into flu season and the fall when COVID usually seems to ramp up. So the article discusses how the fall is going to be chaotic. It writes in quotes here, Health officials are banking on vaccinations to contain monkeypox and polio before those become standing threats in the United States. They're counting on updated boosters to restore waning immunity against COVID-19. And with influenza expected back in the U.S. this fall, flu shots could be uh, critical to prevent severe illness and keep hospitals from becoming overwhelmed. So I actually said there's three things that vaccines need to be for, but actually four, I guess, like if you count the flu as well, which I actually got my flu shot last year, first time maybe ever. I usually don't get the flu shot, but I went in to get a tetanus booster, and they're like, do you want to get it? And I was like, eh, yeah, I don't really want to have to go to the doctor. So did that. Uh, so the article addresses, though, just a real concern about how everything from state, local, and federal health agencies are just not prepared. And basically, it's after three years of contending with vaccine hesitancy, politics, global pandemic, and healthcare workers are tired. They're exhausted. Some of them are even getting death threats, harassment. And so a lot of people are just like, fuck this, I'm done. Excuse my language, but you get the point. And so it's 
going to be interesting to see the fall. And, you know, I, I, I hope we're resilient and can get through this, but it's just never optimistic when we kind of have like a four-headed problem coming our way. Moving on, though, uh, the polio thing is fascinating because I've been following it for about a week. I think I want to say it was about a week ago that I saw the article about how they'd found polio in sewage water in New York. And I was unsure whether to comment on it because I still don't really think it's like as big of a deal as some people are saying, but it could be if we neglect it or don't worry about it, which we seem to be good at doing during recent health crises. But anyways, it's important to note that not everyone's at risk for this. From what I've kind of gathered, the infection, or sorry, the injection vaccines, because they used to do like a sugar cube, um, and then they've also done an injection vaccine for polio. And that's more recent. I think people like myself would have got the, the injection one. And basically it makes it so people can't get the paralysis where where the virus you know goes into your central nervous system and causes the paralysis but you can still get the virus and it just stays in your intestinal tract and again i'm just trying to synthesize what i read but that's what it sounds like is that's why they find it in sewage water is because for a lot of people it can stay in your intestinal tract you might not even know you have it and then this means that it can spread through fecal matter without knowing you ever had the virus. And, I, and they think that's what's happened in New York City and probably in other places. Now, I've also seen arguments that people just say, we used to not have the ability to test our water like we do now. So now maybe we're just finding things that were already there. That also could be true. But I'll get into why that's probably not the full picture. So the problem with this is if they're finding this uptake, I guess, in, in, um, in, in the polio virus in water is that It'd be fine if everyone was up to date with this vaccine that keeps it from going to paralysis. But the article I read notes and quotes here, children typically get four doses of the vaccine by the time they're six years of age in the U.S., but many kids have fallen behind on their shots. Globally, the pandemic led to the largest backslide in childhood vaccination rates in 30 years, and that's according to the World Health Organization. And we do have to remember that, is that that was one of the issues of, you know, this whole pandemic is people didn't go to the doctor for some of these things. And so we could see an uptake in diseases such as measles and potentially polio here. So there is a worry that if polio is again present in sewer water, it means that people who are vaccinated against it can still pass it and carry it, right? And so if kids maybe are behind on their vaccinations or maybe there's people immigrating to the U.S. who did not ever get the vaccine, it could be problematic. And it's, it's going to be worse because, of course, there's vaccine, excuse me, there's vaccine hesitancy, disinformation on the rise. And it just seems like <clears throat> some of the fringe views of vaccination and disinformation about it have really made the mainstream. So it's going to be kind of an upward, upward battle for this. So, yeah, happy news. I, I hope we get it together because I think all of us deserve kind of some normality, <laughs> at least on the health front. Our politics are not going to get better anytime soon. But at least on the pandemic front, it would be nice to kind of have a break, I guess. But Moving on, I want to focus this episode on Ukraine and the assassination of Alexander Dugin's daughter in a car bomb near Moscow. In a little bit, I'll get into who he is in more detail, but just generally, he's an ultranationalist, Russian ideologue, and technically an ally of Vladimir Putin. And it was his daughter, Daria Dugina, Dugina sorry, who died when, in quotes here, the Toyota Land Cruiser she was driving was ripped apart by a powerful explosive about 12 miles west of the capital. And The Guardian reports here in quotes, prominent Russian hawks without evidence quickly blamed Kiev, Kiev for the attack, calling it an assassination attempt and demanding the uh, Kremlin respond by targeting government officials in Kiev. And from my understanding, the car was her father's vehicle, though I've seen different speculations about that. And 
some people have questioned that maybe he was supposed to be in the car with her. And maybe that would make sense as if people were trying to kill him because he's not popular with everyone in Russia, to say the least. Maybe he decided to not go last minute and they still assumed he was in the car or something like that. Who knows? Again, there's no clear information coming out, which I'll get to later. But so it's really hard to actually know what's going on. So now I know the FSB, which is kind of like the CIA and the FBI put together, is, would be the best way I would say it. And other Russian agencies, officials, politicians have immediately blamed the Ukrainians. And even the leader of the self, self-proclaimed Russian-controlled Donetsk People's Republic, who's Denis Pulchilin, he also wrote on his Telegram channel that Dugina had been killed and he blamed the Ukrainian government as well. Now, there's also reasons to believe it was just maybe a false flag or an inside job. I don't want to sound like Alex Jones, so maybe I'll keep false flag out of this. But um, there's also people that think maybe it did happen internally is what I would say. And honestly, all of these speculations are kind of reasonable. Like, you could understand each one. Um, though, I, I will admit that I, I see the media call him a Putin ally and an oligarch, and he's kind of those things. But I'd say he's more of kind of a reactionary who's kind of actually guided a lot of the far-right nationalism in Russia. He's kind of been an early adopter, right? He's the guy that uh, had the cell phone back in the late 80s when everyone else was going, what's that person doing? And... From what I've gathered, I've read some pieces on him in The Atlantic, Foreign Policy Magazine, and in The Economist, and the description of just being a Putin ally does not really do it justice. In a sense, he is more of an extremist. Um, He's known for developing this right-wing view of Russia's place in the world. He's been described as a Russian fascist, sorry, a well-known conspiracy theorist. Some claim he helped shape the president's uh, expansionist foreign policy. Apparently, he's also quite prominent amongst far-right circles in the West because he speaks good English, he's articulated videos in English, and he has kind of similar expansionary views, hyper-nationalist views to many alt-right figures in Western Europe, the United States. So I've seen some people think that he actually is more popular in the West than he is in Russia, which is troubling, I guess you could say, on its own terms. But I've seen people say that, and he's... Let's see. So he was an early critic of Ukraine and as far back as the 90s was in support of invading territories. He was also an early adopter of kind of this clash of civilizations idea where like civilizations are not able to work together, different religions, ethnicities, like so that's why you need to dominate over them. And that's obviously something that has been adopted by Putin. And Tom Nichols um, writes in The Atlantic in quotes, Alexander Dugin is part of a weird strain of Russian imperial hypernationalism that somehow managed to venerate Russian orthodoxy, Stalin, the Nazis, and the occult all at the same time, <laughs> which is quite a, quite a mix. Like, it's kind of impressive when you could do that, but that kind of seems like the weird Russian na- hypernationalism is like, it takes a lot of pages out of a lot of different books that in theory usually shouldn't really work together, but they do. And honestly, I, I looked at him. He does give me like modern Rasputin vibes. Kind of, kind of a creepy looking dude. But what this tells me is that he has a lot of fans and a lot of enemies everywhere. I also read that his daughter ran a disinformation website that was sanctioned by the United States. So she was clearly uh, mixing and drinking the same Kool-Aid as well. So you could also speculate that maybe she also just was assassinated independently from her dad. Someone else wanted her dead. Like, she clearly also had some influence in this, peddling in extremism. So it's really hard to actually, like, speculate what was happening here. And, of course, the FSB are not, you know, bastions of uh, 
transparency. Moving on, though, this killing, I think, could be a serious moment for Ukraine and the West, or at least it could justify more aggression towards Ukraine. And it's probably not a good thing either way. So writing in the Atlantic, Tom Nichols, who is an expert on Russia, he was at the military or the, at the Naval War College for a while. And he, uh, he writes in quotes here, her death may have an impact far beyond the Russian capital, or it might not. <laughs> this may have been part of yet another tangled vendetta amongst Russians elites. This alludes, though, to the bigger question about who really did kill her, because it seems like there's multiple theories and all sound kind of, kind of sensible, kind of insane. So let's just walk through some of the speculation. So apparently, almost immediately, which is always kind of fishy, immediately after the incident, the FSB claimed that a Ukrainian woman named Natalia Vavik moved into Dujina's apartment about a month ago, planted a bomb, and fled to Estonia. Very cut and dry story. It's very convenient for a myriad of reasons, too, because Estonia is, let's just say, not getting along with Russia right now. Uh, Russia's pretty much just blocked them out and has had very fiery rhetoric towards it, Estonia over the last few months. And it seems just kind of convenient to me to blame Estonia for harboring a Ukrainian assassin. It's kind of like you're killing two birds with one stone here, right? You can blame two countries that you're pissed off at. <laughs> and then there's also claims out of Kiev that the bombing was the work of a group calling itself the National Republican Army that is dedicated to overthrowing Putin. But this hasn't been verified. Now, people express doubt about this too, and I would probably doubt that as well. And I think also, for example, it has been very infrequent, I guess would be the right word, for Russian... I'm sorry, for Ukrainian forces to actually get to Russia, like, and get inside of Russia. So an assassination I, I, by Ukrainians inside of Russia doesn't seem like the most likely one. Again, anything's possible. But I, I just questioned the one where they said this Natalia Vavik, who's a Ukrainian, just did this, planted the bomb, and fled to Estonia right away. That just seems a little too cut and dry when enough information might not be out. Now, again, who knows? Maybe the FSB was surveilling this for a while and they knew. That's always possible, but it just seems kind of strange. And also, Nichols notes here in quotes, could the FSB itself have hit Dugina while trying to kill Dugin? Perhaps as a plot, the kind Russian spies have been accused of in the past to spin up fresh hatred against Ukraine and get some of the heat off of itself for its botched advice six months ago. That's a stretch, too, because anyone who, who admired Dugin was already all in on the war. But in Moscow 2022, anything is possible, end quotes. And yeah, anything is possible. So like that also, to be frank, wouldn't really surprise me either. What I would say, though, is that we do have to remember that to justify more aggression in Chechnya, the FSB was notorious for like planting these bombings in schools and other malls and then blaming Chechen forces for him when it turns out it looks like it was Russian forces later on. So the Russians do have this kind of like scorched earth, like let's blame the other side and then justify more violence. So it wouldn't really surprise me. Again, this also seems like the fire hose of falsehood, you know, where you just flood the system with so much bullshit and see what sticks. It's kind of like just throwing stuff at the wall, see what sticks. And again, it's kind of working because everyone in the West is unsure who did it. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of chaos. And Russia is probably going to start escalating in, in Ukraine. So, and I, I, I've heard people say that a lot of military intelligence is starting to worry about an escalation. So it would kind of time right. And again, we'll probably never know who exactly killed her. 
I, I don't, I'm not going to wait for it, to say the least. And I cannot help but say that even if this was not an inside job and it was just some, you know, anti-Dugan person inside of Russia or a Ukrainian or whatever, the outcome is going to be the same, right? The message is already set. Um, when, the, when the FSB immediately said it was a Ukrainian who fled to Estonia, that message will stick and it will help mobilize the Russian cause against his enemies. And it also will probably fuel the ultranationalism that Dugan himself supports. So it's, it's worth to keep watching. I hope we don't see more escalation, but I, I think it's almost, almost just inevitable at this point. So lastly, I wanted to give a few more updates on Ukraine. Like they have their Independence Day going on now, which I would think would probably be a time that Russia would want to do something. Uh, so far, I haven't seen anything. But... I think the crazy thing is that the invasion started six months ago today. That's pretty damn wild to me when you really think about it. It just feels like forever ago, but really was not. Obviously, time is weird like that. So much has changed, though, since late February, right? That just feels like an era ago. Uh, anyways, the Biden administration has announced another $3 billion in long-term aid to train and equip Ukrainian forces who are struggling to beat back the Russian invasion. All I can say is that I agree with it. I just hope that the money goes to the right people and places. I've read some foreign policy articles. I've seen speculation out of Kyiv that over the last few months, some of the weapons and money have not ended up in the right place. I've seen numbers as high as like 30 or 40%. I guess that is kind of a problem when you have kind of a decentralized crisis and a lot of chaos, but it does answer the question is like, why keep sending it if maybe it's falling into the hands of opposition or whatnot? I'm, it's, it's kind of a loose comparison, but you, but you just think about like what the CIA and the Americans did, um, did in Afghanistan, working with the ISB, you know, the, the Pakistani intelligence, uh, arming the Mujahideen and other groups. Like that didn't work out too well for us because sometimes when you have an intermediary who you're giving arms and money to, you don't always know where that goes. You don't always know if it's in your benefit. Again, I'm not comparing, I'm not comparing Ukrainians to the Taliban here, but sometimes when there's too many parties involved and you don't know where the money's going, I do have questions about that, especially when it's a high price tag, like $3 billion. So I hope, I hope the money's going to the right place. And I am not an expert on this. I'm sure, I'm sure the American uh, intelligence and our State Department and others, Department of Defense, are trying to do the best they can. And it, it is also like, I, I think, I know Europe is kind of really divided on this. Like this crisis clearly has kind of created a schism in the EU, but I do think they need to be more involved in this because the United States has given more aid to Ukraine than all the other countries combined. And I, I am always skeptical about how useful that is for anybody. So who knows? Uh, but six months, that's just crazy to me. Also, Zelensky gave a fiery speech at the UN believe it was yesterday. And he brought up some troubling points that I kind of keep forgetting about. I'm probably going to butcher the name. So bear with me. I, I said it a few times in my head before I started recording. But it's one of those names where it just doesn't make sense to my Spanish speaking or English speaking mind here. So there's a power plant. It's called Zaporizhia. And it's a power plant and one of the biggest or nuclear power plant, sorry. And it's one of the biggest in Europe and is currently completely controlled by Russia obviously not great. And I mean, power plants are pretty resilient, especially modern ones. But I don't see Russia being like a sane actor who we really want involved in this scenario, but they are and they're controlling it. And in his UN speech, Zelensky basically called for the International Atomic Energy Agency to take permanent control. 
And he said, Russia has put the world on the brink of a radiation catastrophe. And it should be noted, like, I don't know if that's Russia's goal, and I would kind of hope not. But if this, if this were to, you know, start leaking or there was some sort of meltdown or some sort of catastrophe, uh, it, it, would, it would spread to a lot of parts of Europe. So we, we definitely don't want to see that either. And Reuters yesterday did note that, uh, that the International Atomic Energy Agency is meant to visit the plant soon. That is good. We'll see if the Russians and the Ukrainians agree on working together for some compromise there. Again, so far we haven't seen a lot of sanity and rationality, but you never know. I could be wrong. And that is good because I keep reading that both sides are blaming the other for firing on the plant. Never great. Anyways, uh, probably later in the week, I'll look in. Biden is going to be forgiving $10,000 of student loan forgiveness if you make, I believe, under $105,000 a year. I am mixed on it because I kind of understand why people would say, does forgiveness work if we haven't actually solved kind of the predatory loan process itself? It's kind of like just throwing money into the problem without fixing it. Maybe we need to look at why education is so expensive. Do we also give loan forgiveness to people who didn't go to college? Because I can understand kind of the populist messaging around like, I, I didn't go to college. Why am I paying for this? You know what I mean? I, I can understand all of it. So it's going to be interesting to see. It's going to be very interesting to see. I'll probably talk more about that later in the week. But, you know, Biden has been busy. I'll give him props to that. I know a lot of people are going to be happy, but I know that Fox News and the right are going to fuel this and say, see, they only care about college elites. And sometimes I, I kind of understand that point. So, yeah, yeah, I'm torn. Anyways, uh, have a great rest of your day. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, all that jazz. Find me on Twitter. Sometimes I like to rant on there. So take care. Have a good one. Adios. Thank you.